What we're developing are a totally different physics behind how motors work. 99.9% of what exists in the world uses magnetic forces to do that energy conversion from electricity to mechanical power. What our two co-founders discovered was something that Ben Franklin did almost 300 years ago now, where he uses static electricity instead of magnetic forces to create motion. And that's what we've developed. Static forces give you a whole lot better efficiency. Everyone did LED lighting 10 years ago. Motors are the next thing that is gonna make the same level of improvement of switching from fluorescent lights to LED lights. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Matt Maroon, CEO of C-Motive Technologies. Matt is a six-time veteran of clean tech startups. And by the way, you know that's true because we call it clean tech, not just climate tech. Developing and selling new technologies from advanced batteries to energy optimizing artificial intelligence software with the goal of improving society's efficient use of resources and reducing environmental impact. C-Motive is the first and only company commercializing sustainable high-efficiency motor technology using electrostatic principles to decarbonize stationary industrial and e-mobility applications. Their investors include Prime Impact Fund, Collaborative Fund, and Starlight Ventures. In this episode, we talked about how motors consume 50% of all the world's electricity, despite how oblivious we all are to this fact, including me. The fact that 2% of a motor's life cycle costs are attributed to its upfront cost, that is CapEx versus its OpEx. The whopping size of the motor market at $100 billion in sales per year. Their efficiency at 90% going to 95% compared to most motors, which average 50 to 70%. The utility in industrial applications at less than 500 RPMs, especially in geographies with higher power prices. And of course, how dudes with long hair and climate tech need to stick together. Anyway, lots more here. Hope you enjoy it. And please give Matt and C Motive a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Matt Maroon, uh, CEO at C-Motive, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So listeners don't know this because they're not seeing us chat, but as we joked, it's nice to it's nice to hang out with another long-haired dude in, in climate <laughs> tech. It, we we got to stick together, as you say, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we have to stick together. I had told everybody that I was not going to cut my hair until we raised uh, the latest equity round and then... Uh-huh. We we raise the round and yet my hair continues to keep growing. So I don't I don't know where I don't know where the end point is on this one. Yeah, maybe it's a it's an omen. It's a, it's a sign of good luck. I think you just keep yeah. just keep, keep it going. Yeah, yeah. keep it going. 
So to start us off, you you shared a stat earlier, which I think is worth repeating, which is around 50% of all electricity that we consume globally, I think, it is yep. consumed by by motors. And I think I think it's easy for us to imagine, oh, well, you know, like I think about a motor in my car, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I think most of us do not think about all of the motors in industrial settings or for f- fulfillment centers, et cetera, where yeah. it sounds like the numbers can be, can be much higher. So just kind of go, go a little deeper in how big this opportunity, problem slash opportunity is around efficiency of motors. Yeah. So, so if you just start with like your personal life and think about from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, how many motors you interact with or rely on, but never ever think about it. So for, for me, like the tiny little motor in my electric toothbrush in the morning, the the pump in my coffee or so my coffee grinder, the pump for my coffee maker, let alone the compressor in my refrigerator, the fan, you know, whether it's my air conditioner running or my furnace, the motor in my old Toyota Prius that I'll be handing down to my daughter here in a couple of months, right? All of these things you you simply take for granted. It's just there. And you're like, well, of course my furnace turns on. Of course my refrigerator keeps my food cold, but it all relies on very humble, like often ignored electric motors. In the industrial world, that problem or that that opportunity is just as big, if not bigger. So right, you walk into walk into the grocery store and how many motors do you think are powering the compressors on those refrigerators or every box that you get delivered from the US Postal Service or FedEx or UPS or Amazon, right? Probably travel miles and miles and miles on conveyor belts, all powered by motors to keep the thing going. So um, the motor industry is enormous. There's a hundred billion dollars of motors sold annually. And like you said, 50 plus percent of all global electricity is consumed by a motor. So kind of wild when you think about it, just how how ignored this fundamental thing is and how ignored by both like technologists as well as ignored by the people that that just take them for granted that right, rely on them every single day. So hmm. we're trying to address a pretty big, pretty big problem here. Well, unfortunately, we're, we're telling everyone this little secret here on the podcast, but <laughs> You know, like like very large and ignored kind of sources of impact or energy use. What a great place to start a business. Although the headline can sound boring, right, uh, or or, yeah. or unsexy, but boy, yep. the opportunity there is is pretty enticing, huh? Yeah, let me let me tell you, it is not the easiest introduction to venture capitalists <laughs> to say, hey, we're going to go reinvent the industrial motor. Um, Woo! Yeah, confetti, confetti, have the cachet. <laughs> Yeah, but when you when you dig a layer deeper, then that's when people get excited. So when they they dig into, so I don't know exactly how much technical detail you'd like me to get into, but just the quick high level, what we're what we're developing are a, a totally different physics behind how motors work. Mm. So every every motor that I mentioned earlier, ninety nine point nine percent of what exists in the world uses magnetic forces to uh, do that energy conversion, right? From electricity to mechanical power. So I trained as an engineer, but I wasn't a very good engineer, which is why I do what I do now. So I will (laughs) simplify it down to the level that I understand. Nice. So a traditional motor, you pass electric current through a bunch of copper coils inside of the motor. 
It's the same thing as like the experiment you would do with your kid where you take a copper wire and you wrap it around a nail. And then if you attach it to a battery, you create a little electromagnet. That's the exact same fundamentals that go into every single motor that exists today. But you pass that current through copper windings, you create a bunch of heat. It's it's wildly inefficient system. So what our two co-founders discovered was something that Ben Franklin did almost 300 years ago now, where he uses static electricity instead of magnetic forces to create motion. And that's what we've developed. And that's what we're going to be pushing out into the market this year. Well, later this year in 2023. Static forces give you a whole lot better efficiency, specifically tailored for a lot of these applications we're talking about in industrial apps. So really can make a pretty big difference, you know, net difference to overall companies' energy efficiencies. Okay. Let's go to the origin story a little bit. I know you took the took the kind of reins as CEO maybe a couple of years ago, but tell us the origin. And maybe after we go kind of back in time, let's, let's come back to present time and like, what does it sound like or what does it look like to reach a potential customer in it and have this conversation they actually care yeah. about? But first, first the origin. All right. So um, our two co-founders, so uh, Justin Reed, who's our chief technology officer, and Dan Lutis, who's our chief science officer, they met in graduate school at UW-Madison. So they were both pursuing their doctorate degrees in electrical engineering. They were both looking for cool technology to work on as part of their you know, graduate studies. And Dan very specifically was, was interested in electric motors and, and how Kind of why why do we always do them this way? Why hasn't anyone ever tried to do something different? So the two of them began working on electrostatic motors while in graduate school and then spun that out into C-Motive you know, right around 20, 2013, 2014. So you can imagine a couple fresh-faced graduate students working literally out of Justin's you know spare bedroom in his apartment for a couple of years. Fast forward to 2016, they um, were able to hire the first uh, first couple engineers to join the team to do a little bit of preliminary design work. Fast forward again to 2019, and th- this is when the company really, really got started. So 2019 is when the company raised a seed round of venture capital that was led by Prime Impact Fund out of Boston. And we have grown from there. So from 2019, I joined in 2020. I think there were six or seven other people here when I joined in 2020. And now fast forward to 2023 and we've doubled the size of the company. So we're now 14 and a half, technically 14 and a half people, still headquartered here in Madison, Wisconsin, but trying to execute that idea that that Justin and Dan had while you know still in grad school. Coming back to, to the present kind of moment, if you will, you have the potential to talk to, um, you know, uh, uh, owners of, of large industrial facilities. I don't know, how, how easy is it to get their attention? What do conversations sound like with prospective customers? I'm sure it's not as easy as, did you know you can save 50% on your motors? Great, where yeah. do I sign, right? Right, right. I, I mean, I wish it was that easy. And again, I think this comes down to because motors have just been such a taken for granted technology for so long that no one thinks about how much how much better they could get or should expect out of the motors they have. Interesting statistic is that over the lifetime of a motor, 
only 2% of the cost is the upfront capital expense. The other 98% of the cost for a motor in its life is how much electricity you have to keep putting into it. But again, this is an industry that's been, I mean, pretty stationary, uh, so to speak, for, for the past couple of decades. There has not been a ton of innovation that's gone into it. There have been incremental improvements to energy efficiency and, you know, a Band-Aid put on a problem here or there. But but by and large, there's been no step change in, in technology or what people could expect. So the challenge we have with a lot of people is, you know, walking in and saying, hey, we can save you 50% on your electricity bill. You got to get over that first, the shock value of, well, why haven't I heard about this before? Mm. Why is no one else doing it? Or why... Why is it a company of 14 people out of Madison, Wisconsin, that has seemed to crack this nut when no one else in the world has done it before? So we are we're targeting and in, in our target audience to speak to really two two audiences. So one, the the people that are in charge of the sustainability for these large organizations that have been put in charge of setting and then meeting a roadmap for reducing their emitted carbon, whether that's you know scope one carbon in the products, the scope two carbon from energy or, or even scope three embodied carbon. Companies are now making these public commitments to shareholders. They have to do it. And a lot of the low hanging fruit has already been taken up. People can buy wind racks or they can put solar on their roof. But until these large organizations really take a focus on reducing the amount of electricity they use, the amount of energy that they actually consume, they're, they're always going to be kind of chasing their tail uh, in terms of hitting those sustainability targets. So we want to meet with people that understand what those targets are and uh, realize that this is a very low risk way to reduce their overall carbon emissions. And then the, the other people are, are obviously, you know, the, the operations managers, the CFOs, the people that are, you know, tracking how much they are actually spending on electricity costs. Everyone wants to know that they can get a payback in under two years. And it's, you know, in almost all scenarios, we're able to deliver that sort of economic payback as well. So Matt, ju- just to repeat the stat you ran through, which is pretty, pretty stunning. If doing a life cycle cost assessment of a motor, only 2% of the entire cost is the cost of the motor itself. But I'm guessing that many facility owners, let's say, make a decision based on First cost, yep. Which is, which is a you know, understandable yet yet myopic. Is that part of your challenge, I wonder? Yeah, a hundred percent. And obviously not unique to C Motive. I think everyone, every new hardware company that's selling yep. something better, particularly when you're small, you're not going to be the cheapest product out. You know, we're not going to be the cheapest motor to start with. Uh, we certainly will be building our way there and feel like we can get there, but absolutely is a challenge is to get people to understand that, hey, a payback period in 12 months, 18 months, two years, still better for you given how much electricity you're throwing away from the inefficiencies of your traditional motor. Okay. So I'm going to ask a question, which I'm sure you've you've thought about a hundred times, but I'll ask it anyway. Given the kind of first cost concern, like it costs a little more there's a couple of your payback or whatnot in some scenarios. Have you all thought about, or is it in your plan to do a, a kind of efficiency as a service solution where you own the motors, but you provide cost savings, essentially? It becomes an OPEX versus a CAPEX for your customers, maybe? 
It's a great idea. It's on the the long water list of things that we have to figure out yeah. still. But yeah, I think, and again, this is also part of the reason why we're also, you know, specifically trying to talk with people in charge of sustainability because there's a dollar metric or a euro metric, right? Associated with how many kilos of emitted carbon you have in the scope two carbon emissions. So we, we got to figure out, and, and again, it's a challenge not unique to Cimoto, but everyone in the clean tech hardware space, you know, how do you properly monetize these new technologies that bring value, not just on your utility bill, but also bring value on carbon, maintenance systems. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things. So yes, we got to think about it. No, I don't have a real good answer for you right now. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Long-term plan. So your entry point is maybe like a, a VP or chief sustainability officer, perhaps, who yep. understands both the carbon savings and the cost savings. Who do they get involved next to get you to a yes? Yeah, the next step is really reaching down into the actual operations team. So, you know, from the people that are responsible for doing the maintenance on the motors that they have right now for changing gearboxes or changing out belt systems, as well as those that are responsible for specking new equipment. You're going to expand your logistics facility. You need to add another two miles of conveyor systems. You know, you can go to the conveyor manufacturers, and there are many of them, and specify, hey, I want to have a motor that meets these certain efficiency specifications, or I want a motor that is permanent magnet-free and still meets these efficiency specs. So, we start with sustainability, then it really goes from there into the much more technical selling of, hey, here's how these things integrate, here's how they work, uh, and here's how you would spec them with your suppliers. Got it. And is there a scenario where you all don't do the selling, but instead you're brought in to the project through, I don't know, like an energy service company, like a Honeywell or someone? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, we are, again, being a very small team, we're trying to maximize the amount of outreach that we can do, try to get to as many people as possible. So a lot of our focus right now is is on those end users, the VPs of the sustainability or the chief sustainability officer to get them to understand. But there is also absolutely a push strategy here as well through system integrators. So Mm -hmm. uh, whether they're energy service providers, whether they are the people that are uh, supplying the overall industrial automation equipment and right. kind of the intelligence behind industrial automation, as well as the kind of the integrators that are building and selling the conveyor system, the material handling, the pumps, the you know compressors, et cetera. So we've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot more people for us to reach out to than we can do, you know, on a uh, with the limited time that we have. So, sure. but you're you're absolutely right. It's got to be both end users and kind of the suppliers as well. And for, for most of your, your end use customers, do they have the kind of, I don't know, sensing, monitoring capabilities such that after they put in your motors, they can be like, oh yeah, our, our electricity use is indeed lower for this motor versus just I'm looking at my overall bill and trying to say, well, probably it's because of, you know, Matt's, Matt's fancy yeah. motors. My new motor. Great, great question. I, I think it's I think it's a pretty good mix of people that would just be looking at, again. If you've always taken your motor for granted, why would you ever spend any more money monitoring, you know, actual motor performance? So one of the interesting things that we've learned is as we've talked to particularly bigger customers, 
they're the ones that are coming back and saying, well, we were shocked when we actually met, monitored our facility. We were shocked to find out that 65% of our electricity was coming from motors. Mm. So we know people can do it, but I don't think that it is the norm at this point in time. Okay. Let's, let's go one level deeper into the types of customers that benefit the most from what you're doing. I think maybe you've referenced like, a, like an Amazon, uh, perhaps. Maybe there are certain sectors, maybe it's a certain size of company, a certain geography that matters. Like if you had to kind of profile your ideal customers with a few attributes, how would you describe them? So geographically speaking, it really it's really comes down to what people are paying for electricity right now. So if you're in Europe um, and you're paying 20, 30, I don't know, 35 euro cents per kilowatt hour for industrial power, obviously a much stronger uh, motivation to do energy efficiency projects versus uh, me, maybe being somewhere in the Midwest here in the U.S. where you're still relatively inexpensive. So we are looking for for organizations that geographically are in those higher industrial cost rates for electricity, Europe, the Northeast, United States, et cetera. The type of organization, you know, we we are trying to find people that don't have a facility where they have one motor or two motors, right? But but really those groups that have, you know, a hundred or so motors running everything from pumps to conveyors to overhead fans, uh, because the obviously the broader that you would adopt this new technology, the bigger your savings would be. The biggest, the biggest real criteria though um, that we're focused on are the people that have made those public sustainability commitments. The people that are actually monitoring and reporting against their scope two carbon emissions, those that understand really the critical nature of raw materials and are looking at, and so this is something that I've not discussed yet, but you know, our motors do not use any rare earth metals no permanent magnets. We use less than a tenth of the amount of copper that exists in a traditional motor. We do not use any electrical steel. So there is a real strong, not just a supply chain value proposition here, but for those that are really concerned about availability of some of these raw materials, you know, almost everything I brought up, almost 90% of them come from offshore. So there are a number of organizations that look at yeah, it's more efficient. We'll save me money. We'll save me my scope to avoided carbon emissions. But in addition to that, right, it's the better thing to do from an embodied carbon standpoint, from a raw material sourcing standpoint. So, you know, being a small company, getting these first, you know, demonstration units out into the field, we are really trying to find people that understand all of these different dimensions and aren't just, you know, myopically focused just on the energy efficiency alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. How about your team? What kind of, I don't know, skills, et cetera, comprise your team today? What kind of, uh, of team members are you, will you be looking for? Yeah. It is not a stretch to say that the world center of competency for electrostatic motors sits right here in Madison, Wisconsin. There, there's no one else in the world working on electrostatic motors. So the know-how, the 100 plus years of combined experience makes this pretty unique as compared to a lot of other places. We are today pretty heavy on technology, as you would expect, pretty heavy on electrical, mechanical engineering. There is a chemistry element to our product as well. And again, we haven't gone into a lot of the details of the science, but there's there's a very strong electrochemistry aspect to what we're building here. So we also have 
you know, organic chemists, synthetic chemists, as well as organic chemists. Or I think I said organic twice there. Um, <laughs> that's how important uh, it is. Yeah, yeah that's, how, that's exactly. And how little I understand about it too. As we look to expand in the coming year, the focus is really going to be on commercial and kind of operations. So, you know, we, we need to get the message out. We need to talk to more people. We need to get demo units out in the field. And from there, in a $100 billion motor marketplace, you know, we're not we're not going to be selling one motor or 10 motors, right? We're expecting purchase orders for thousands of motors. And so scaling up and uh, getting those quality systems in place and, and getting our supply chain in, in place, all of that critical operations is going to be the next phase of growth for the company in the next you know, two years. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to open the door. And if you want to walk through that door and kind of geek out on the science of your product... You're, you're invited, man. All right. I'll do it. I'll do it super quick. And again, this is the best that I understand too. So I described early on traditional motors are all based on magnetism. You take electric currents, you pass it through copper windings. It creates a magnetic field and uh, that's how you create motion from electricity. We're using static cling. So it is, it is the same force that if you took a balloon and rubbed it against a wool sweater, you can, you can feel that electric field you know, charge up on the surface of the balloon. That's the force that we're building up inside of our motors. We are just magnifying that force tens of thousands of times. So we use printed circuit boards for our rotors, which are the rotating discs in our machine and the stators, the stationary parts of it, common off-the-shelf printed circuit boards. We can You can literally get them made anywhere from all the standard materials. We align a number of these uh, rotors and stators. They, they kind of look like vinyl albums. They're about 10 inches in diameter, 25 centimeters in diameter. You know, we put anywhere from seven to 20 of them in a row to get the right amount of power that we need out of it. And then we fill our motors with Uh, the chemistry that I was just describing. So our motors are filled with this proprietary dielectric fluid. And so the fluid, the primary purpose of the fluid is that it acts to magnify the electric fields that we generate on the inside of the machine. So the better the fluid, the greater the strength of the electric field, the more torque output, the higher the efficiency of the motor. So we've got a long roadmap of you know, where we're at today is not the end point for what this motor is going to be in the future. We're going to continue to get, you know, more torque density out of the machine, more twisting force per unit weight. We're going to continue to drive the efficiency from today we're at 90%. We'll be moving up to 95 plus percent in the future. And that that's compared to a traditional motor that you know, when you attach a gearbox to it or a belt drive system could be anywhere from 50 to 70% net efficiency. So we're starting already better and we've got a, a pretty solid roadmap of technical work ahead of us that will get us to levels that, that simply can't be achieved by traditional magnetic machines. And then wow. I guess we're, we're focused on low speed applications. So you're not going to find our motors inside of a, you know, a Tesla Model 3. We're focused on applications where the, the rotating speed of the machine is kind of less than 500 RPMs. And so that's, that's where we win. Those are the applications we're focused on. And that is, that is, you know, all of these industrial applications I've been talking about, that's where they fit. Perfect. 
Well, I was, I was going to joke and say that like any good CEO, you went from tech and turned it into selling, you know? <laughs> well <laughs> done. Well I done. I know. It's a, uh, God, if, if, if 20 year old Matt could see me now, I'd hate myself. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I have probably joked on this podcast before that when I was an undergrad environmental science major, one of my mentors, a professor was like, well, you know, what do you want to do later? And I was like, oh, I mean, academics for sure. And I just, he's like, well, why not, you know, private sector? I was like, oh man, sales are, are terrible. I just hate sales. They're so gross and slimy, whatever yeah. else. And this, this the botany professor like fell out of his chair laughing at me. He's like, basically, what an idiot. He's like, he's like <laughs> even in academics, you're always selling, right? You're always, always selling something. Yeah. Anyway, I fully embrace it now. Hey, it's Chris. Just a brief message from our sponsors and we'll get back to the show. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't take sponsors. On the other hand, I do have the privilege of leading the only executive peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors fighting climate change. With monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. Today's 30 plus members represent over $8 billion in market cap or assets under management for climate solutions. If you're interested, go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. All right, back to the show. Let's see. So let, let's go from C-Motive to, uh, to Matt. So the transition is maybe, how did you choose to become CEO? So this is uh, it's my seventh startup company. Um, most have been venture backed. I've spent time at two startup companies within large multinational blue chip companies. Everything prior to this has all been energy storage. So my first startup company spun out of Caterpillar, the heavy equipment manufacturer in Peoria, Illinois. And that, that goes all the way back to 2003, I think. So I, I've worked on a bunch of different battery chemistries for you know, things ranging from electric, the early days of electric vehicles to portable devices, ultra capacitors, lithium ion batteries, large battery systems for, you know, utility scale solar installations. And so similar to the story you just told, I remember, I think it was 2006 or 2007 at my first startup company, I had been, I had been working in R&D because that was where my background was at the time. And we, we had hired somebody that uh, th- there seemed to be a string of hirings at the executive level that, that I would mildly classify as assholes. And so uh, <laughs> I, I had uh, went into my CEO at the time and I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, do you have to be an a-hole to get to this level? And, and I'll never forget, you know, and said, no, you, you don't, you don't, you don't have to do that. And uh, so I like, at that time, I decided that at some point I didn't want to work for an a-hole anymore. And mm. so this, uh, I guess the past 20 years of my career, I've just been trying to learn as much as I can, at least to get to the point where, you know, I won't make the same mistakes that I made in the past. And so I, I remember when I interviewed with Justin Reed, the the co-founder here, the first thing I told Justin was, you know, if you learn more by failure, then I'm I'm the smartest guy in Pittsburgh right now, Mm -hmm. because my career to that point had just been, you know, well, let's try this and see how this works. And it didn't work out. 
So that's that's kind of what brought me to this point in time was right trying a bunch of stuff and then uh, learning what not to do again in the future and then vowing to myself not to make those same mistakes again. Yeah. Well, and and not to not to work, not to settle, right, for working for assholes yeah. or to be the asshole and employing and building yes. a team. Yes. And really, really importantly, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot to be said about it, like being genuine and actually like. You, you do get what you give off. So that is, that has been a thing that I've tried to, and I continue to try, even though it's harder some days than others, but continue to try to just like, look, we're all in this together. No one, no one at any one of these clean tech companies, not one company is more important than the other one. And no one within the team knows more than anyone else, right? We all have our place. We all have our skill set of what we got to do if we're actually going to, if there's actually a future where we make a difference. We make this transition to, you know, more energy efficient devices, cleaner, cleaner sources of renewable energy, it is going to take everyone to do it. And there is no, there's no one person that is going to be responsible for any of this. So. Well, I I was, I was staring at another question on my sheet over here, which is to, uh, to tell us something you strongly believe in, whether at work or outside of work, I think you might've just said it, but we'll call that answer unless you want to add to that. No, no, that's, I don't, I, I, quite honestly, I don't remember what I just said, so I won't be able to trust this again. <laughs> just wind this guy up. It's number seven, guys, number seven. How about, uh, tell us what advice you might give your younger self to be faster, more effective, happier along this path, in addition to not working for a-holes? I, I really genuinely think the biggest thing is like, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, whether it's the work itself or the environment that you're in or the mission that you're trying to do, like life is life is simply far too short to be doing something that you don't like doing and you're not going to do your best work. So, you know, I can look back and know that I, I cared the most or I did my best work when I cared the most, when I liked the people that I was around. And especially now there's, there's too many jobs out there. There's too many opportunities to go do something you actually care about. Like, don't settle. And so I think that's, that's what I would love to tell myself. I may have saved myself a couple of years, you know, in my early career, but it's absolutely what, you know, anytime I get a chance to like go to UW and talk to a group of undergrads or even graduate students, it's like, just, just do pick something that you really care about. Cause otherwise, otherwise you're going to regret it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I was advising a mid twenties professional yesterday and they had two job opportunities and one was, you know, kind of more corporate, you know, safer, probably better pay, probably would get to kind of the two-year rotational training, but you could tell he was, his heart wasn't into it. And then he said the other one, and he, he used the word excitement and you could tell it, he, he kind of lit up. And I was like, you don't need my advice, you know, you're, you, you know, you're already, already answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How about tell us some, some habits or routines, whether these are, you know, daily, weekly, you know, yearly to keep you healthy, sane and focused. <laughs> well, I think you should ask my wife and my daughter how sane I am. Uh, okay. Before okay. I, before well, I that was hearty laughter. Okay. We'll take that. Yeah. I'm a hyper competitive person, uh, as probably a lot of people that you talk to are. I need to find outlets for that competitive energy. So, I don't know, like eight or nine years ago, I got into running and... I am not fast and I do not enjoy running, but it is the outlet that like adds that extra layer of discipline of what I need just to keep like, all right, I scheduled, like I'm looking at my calendar right now. 
I have my tempo run tonight at 5 p.m. And by God, I will go do that tempo run tonight at 5 p.m. And I will be able to measure and feel the progress going forward. And so like, I am a, I'm a slave to my calendar. And so like, I have found that the discipline that I need is like putting stuff on the calendar and then checking the box and the feeling of accomplishment afterwards. But again, I don't know. I don't know how many other people feel the same, same sense of accomplishment as I do by checking stuff off their calendar. Well, I, I, I was talking to another 20 something yesterday on career advice. And the question was, well, you know, how do you get so much done slash what you want to get done as like time boxing and basically, basically have, having it on the calendar, an, an appointment to myself, right? I mean, this, this morning on Friday, this is Friday morning is, is when I write the newsletter and I have a two hour block and I better, I better finish it, you know, in those yep. two hours. And I think the acknowledgement, it's okay to like take that time to do it, that stuff for yourself as well. Right. It's I, not to get super philosophical, but like, it's okay. It's okay to be selfish and take some time for yourself, right? You can be a successful climate tech entrepreneur and not spend a hundred hours a week doing stuff, mm-hmm. right? Your productivity from hours 60 to hundred are going to fall off. And so it's fine. You need to take, I, I have, I have made a habit now for, I don't know, 10 years that I don't do any, I don't do any work on Saturday. Saturdays is like the day where like everything gets shut off and it's been fine. Like, that email can last another day until Sunday morning where I get up and make a cup of coffee and go do it. Like in mm-hmm. that, that again, I think that just some self-discipline, some, some acknowledgement that, that we all, everyone that is doing this, you're already fighting an uphill battle. Why, why put yourself in your own way as well? So. Mm. Yeah. I like that. The other part about being hyper-competitive, basically what you said is you're being hyper-competitive with yourself, Right you're seeing your improvement in in time, performance, whatever else with running, which I can imagine some listeners were ready for you to say, like, I took up this other hobby and now I, I love crushing the competition on weekends, you know, which is, <laughs> no. that's fine. But I mean, I think competition yeah. with self is a great reframing for that. Yeah. I like seeing how, yeah, I like seeing my times from the start of a training season to the end of it. I've, well, fortunately or unfortunately, only run one ultra marathon and I use ultra in quotes because it was only a 50K. But I remember like the whole point was, can I, can I, for, like mentally, can I force myself to do it? And that was, that was the competition was, it was a very binary yes, no. I don't care how long it takes me. Can, can I force myself mm-hmm. to be on my feet for 31 miles? And like, I, I don't expect a lot of people to understand why you would do it, but the, the feeling of, that, yeah, holding yourself accountable and sense of accomplishment was, well, now makes me want to sign up for another one. Yeah, yeah. Along the same lines of, of competition with self, I don't know if you wear any sort of biometric tracker like an aura ring or a whoop band, but I, I wear this aura ring and I find that I'm, you know, not every day, but, but most days I'm like, all right, so what was my score for sleep, right? Mm-hmm. What's my score for activity and what's my score for readiness? Wait, well, why not? Why, why am I not kind of at the same score that I was, you know, yesterday, two days ago? So I think sometimes these wearables can facilitate, right, the yes, competition with self. Although a friend the other day was like, was like, no, no, I don't wear an aura ring. I don't need to be reminded that I, I slept like shit last night. I just, it's like, it, it induces it. negative thinking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I use Garmin for my, all my, training runs and it gives you a VO2 max score, which I 
like before everyone sits there and yell, I like, I understand it's not accurate. My wife tells me every time that I brag about my VO2 score is not accurate. <laughs> I get it, but like it's relative to itself. And so the other thing that it gives you is, so your VO2 max score and then uh, your fitness age, which now that I'm getting older and older and not wanting to wrecking, like my daughter turned 16 here in a couple months. And like, mm-hmm. that is a shocking slap in the face to, to just how much older I'm getting. Anyway, I like seeing my fitness age because it tells me I'm still in my twenties. And I okay. think to myself, oh yeah, I'm still, still in my twenties. Okay. Well, uh, and I'm sure the Garmin does not round down, you know, for any purpose whatsoever. No, 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 I'm sure it does not. I'm sure it's a hundred percent accurate. And there's a scientific algorithm that sits behind yes. it. You're, de- you're definitely looking a, a, a strong 23, man. What can I say? Thank you. I, I'll take that. I Earth. absolutely own that. <laughs> on that vote of confidence. Uh, hey, Matt, final um, message to listeners, whether it's the, the kinds of customers or team members you want to hear from, what you got? I encourage everybody to, you know, if you've not think about the tangible ways that you are going to continue to progress forward on those sustainability metrics. Everyone did LED lighting 10 years ago. Motors are the next thing that is going to make the same level of improvement of switching from fluorescent lights to LED lights. You can move from traditional magnetic machines to what C-Motive is offering, generate that uh, that savings, and uh, we're, we're kind of open for business. We are looking forward to getting some of these demos out there and learning alongside early partners. Well, I think, I think that is the soundbite of the podcast. You've all done LED, motors are next, baby. All right. Owners are next. Hey, uh, next. good stuff, Matt. We're uh, yes. for your success. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you, Chris. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.